In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This morning, Pastor Jason is going to speak to the children in the in children's church this morning and watch over that ministry this morning. I appreciate that. My wife is gone and uh, has gone out to see our children in Indiana. We'll return Monday night. So we are um, we are beginning this series in the Gospels, the magnificence of Christ in the Gospels, and we began two weeks ago, and we're going to continue on. This morning, and the goal of that is what John declares in John chapter 1 and verse 14. This is what it says And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want you to see when we start to use language like seeing, we're not just pulling it out of the air. It, it is biblical language. And here, John says, We have. We have seen the glory of the Word, and we'll talk about what that Word is, and we did a couple of weeks ago, but the glory of God is what he's talking about. Not just physically, but John went beyond that to spiritual sight. It wasn't just a matter, because there were many people, many people in Jesus' day who saw Jesus. In fact, there were a great multitude of them following him in John chapter 6. More people than ever followed Jesus We're following him when we come to John chapter 6. But the scripture says he began to talk about some things that they couldn't comprehend and couldn't understand. What he was really talking about was where where they were going to see the apex of his glory. The problem is they didn't hang around long enough. It says in John chapter 6, they turned and no longer followed him. They didn't keep looking long enough to move from physical sight to spiritual sight. And that's a tragedy. There are people who, who hang around and they see Jesus. They know who Jesus is. If you ask them, they might be able to tell you a bit about Him. 
but they don't push through that long enough. They don't keep looking at Christ long enough to begin to see spiritually. My prayer is, wherever you are in that progression, that you you will just look at Christ. If you are a believer and you've begun to see the glory of Christ, keep looking. See more. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, really, when I talk about spiritual sight, you don't know the reality of that, just keep looking at Christ. And also pray. Also pray that that you'll begin to see spiritually. Somebody just, as I was moving from Sunday school to here, just said almost that very same thing. Beginning to see, and I've been praying. That's what we're talking about. I think as you look at Christ, that's why this series, that's why we're looking at Christ in the Gospel chronologically. We won't get everything in His life, but we're just going to hit places in the life of Christ, walking chronologically as best we can through His life. Because I want to keep your focus on Him. But as you focus on Him, as you look into the face of Christ, physically, pray. Pray, God, show me more of your glory. If you don't understand what that word glory means, show me what Pastor Ron is talking about when he talks about glory. Show me what John is talking about when he says, we have seen His glory. Just Keep praying. Keep looking. I believe God is leading us, directing us, and I think there are going to be more and more testimonies from you, which I'm beginning to hear more and more about seeing. About seeing. So, we've said a couple of things. First of all, that the glory is most clearly seen in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in the Gospels. The Gospels really, as we heard in my Sunday school class this morning, are really the story of that. That's what they're about. That's what they're showing us. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Focusing on that. That's where we see the apex of the glory of Christ. The highest point of it. So we want to keep looking. Now, what happens is, some of you, as I've said, don't see that yet. You don't understand what I mean by that. And so as you look, I think God will bring sight, spiritual sight for the first time. Others of you will just keep looking because you've seen it, but you'll see more and more and more. So that's what the seeing and savoring is, that we see it and we begin to savor it as we see more and more of it. And what will be the, the, the real test of whether that's progressing? I think the test of that will be how God raises up in our soul a compulsion to share it. Because I am convinced if you really see it and you really savor it, you will want to share it. And we all have different personalities. And how we do that will be as varied as we are. But if you're really seeing and you're really savoring and you're really seeing glory in that, you can't help but want to share it someplace. You can't help but have it overflow out of your life as you see it. And so that's what I think will be the rhythm of these days as we, as we go through this together. So 
want you now to look back at John chapter 1. We're going to go back a bit and then continue on because we couldn't finish the last time we were in John chapter 1 and I told you we would come back to it. But the first thing that we talked about is that the Word was God. Here it says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So the Word here, when it talks about the Word, it's talking about God. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, was God. And the reference is that He was the Creator. Because it says in verse 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Where do we first hear about that Creator in the revelation of God? In the beginning, what? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The reference to the Word being the Creator is another way to say this Word is God. He is God. And then the Scripture says, and the Word became flesh. This God became flesh. But before we go there, let me take a little bit of time to talk about a subject that sometimes is hard to get our minds fully around. And in fact, you can't get your mind fully around it. But we want to talk a bit and lay some foundational things about the Trinity. We are Trinitarian as Christians. We believe in a Trinity. You won't find that word in the Bible, but it describes what the Bible says. And by Trinity, we mean God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God manifesting itself in three persons. For your information, many of you may know this, but this is one of the main contentions that, that happens when you begin to, to talk to somebody of the Islamic faith. They will say that you believe in three gods. They will say, we believe in one God, Allah. You believe in three gods. You're polytheistic, which is not what Christianity is. The Bible teaches there is one God manifesting in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we don't want to think hard enough about that. We need to. In fact, one of the things I want you to do, I hope you will do, as we're looking at Christ, as we go to the Gospels, I hope you will saturate yourself with the Gospels during this series. You'll just read through the Gospels. If you're not reading place now, you'll start reading through the Gospels. And if you are, that you'll take time to really spend some time in the Gospels. And as you read, I hope you'll read with a Trinitarian kind of view of them. You'll, you'll notice when it's talking and you'll ask yourself, is this talking about the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? As it talks about God in this text. And really begin to see that. You'll begin to see that Trinitarian view of God in the Scriptures. And think about that. Ask questions about that. Really wrestle with the text as you go through it. And what we believe and what Scripture teaches is that we have three persons, one God, but each of those persons of the Trinity have all the attributes of the other person. In other words, it's not... uh, 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. It's 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. They all have the same attributes of the other. And if you look at at the sun and you find out what the sun is like, 
That's the way the Father is as well. If you look at the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is like, that's the way the Son, what the Son is like or the Father. In other words, they're, they're on the same plane. Each possesses all the attributes of the other together. It's important to hold on to that in what we say. Now, there is one distinction that I will make, and this is incredibly important as you read through Scripture. Young people, as you read it, I think it will help Scripture come alive to you as you read it with this view. What I'd like you to see in Scripture as you read it is that though they are equal, all have the attributes of the other. In other words, Jesus doesn't have something the Father doesn't have. The Father doesn't have something the Holy Spirit doesn't have. They all possess it all of the Godhead and the attributes. But they play different roles. They play different roles in the Trinity. And what you will find is, and I'm going to back this up with Scripture here this morning, take some time to do this, but the Son lives in submission to the Father. And that the Holy Spirit lives in submission to both the Son and the Father. There's a time in, in the, the role of the Holy Spirit that, he, that Jesus lives in submission to Him in His earthly ministry. We'll show that. In, in the time of the earthly ministry of Christ on the earth, in His incarnation, you will find that Jesus plays the role in submission to the Holy Spirit. And we'll, we'll put Scripture around that. Don't just take my word for it. But see if that's not the case. They, they're, they're equal... One is not more important than the other. One doesn't have things the other doesn't have. But they willingly live in that role of submission. The the Son to the Father, the Holy Spirit to both the Son and the Father. Now, again, I can say that. If it's not true, don't believe it. But let's look at some Scripture. Let's look for a minute at the Son. I want you to turn to these passages, mark these passages. But the first place you want to turn is John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. Look at what it says. This is Jesus speaking, and He says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, He's talking about Himself, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, which is a reference to the cross, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. You see the issue of authority? I do nothing on my own authority. The issue of submission. Was was the Word God? Yes. Because He was Creator. In the beginning, God created. He was God. But the Son lives in submission to the Father. Other place, He says, I only do what I see the Father doing, Jesus said. That issue of submission. Now the Holy Spirit. Turn to John chapter 16. You see how this can make Scripture come alive if you start to to read it with that view? John chapter 16. Here Jesus again is speaking. He speaks, if you have a Bible that has His words in red, it's all red in John chapter 16. But this is what Jesus says here in verse 12. He's speaking and He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, 
When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. You see the issue of authority? Jesus said, I live in authority to the Father. Here He's talking about the Spirit living under authority. A role. Are they, are they one more important than the other? One have characteristics, the other doesn't have? No. It's, a, it's a purely a matter of the role that they play in the Trinity. And this is what it says in verse 14. This is Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit. He says, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And what is the role of the Holy Spirit here? What's the Holy Spirit going to do? When you read this, and you read about the Holy Spirit, and you read about Jesus, you ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit going to do? Jesus said He's going to glorify Me. The Holy Spirit is going to glorify the Son. Now, just, just to, in a practical sense, I know that there's a class, Dave Palmer's class, is, is having a class on the role of the Holy Spirit. The, the title of that, Francis Chan, is Forgotten God. And what he means by that title, Forgotten God, is that we don't know much about the Holy Spirit. You think about your own life. You think about what you know about the Father, what you know about Jesus, and what you know about the Holy Spirit. I would venture out to say that you know more about Jesus and the Father than you do about the Holy Spirit. Probably. Not in every case, but I would say the majority, if we took a survey, that would be the case. That used to trouble me. It doesn't trouble me as much as it used to. Now, some of that trouble is warranted. Some of us are lazy. We don't, we don't think hard enough about that. And so in that sense there's some validity to the fact we need to know more. We need to pursue understanding of that more. But the other thing that it helps me to see is that's the role that the Holy Spirit plays. You see it? Who's out front? Who is He glorifying? Who is the Holy Spirit glorifying? What does it mean to glorify? It means to put it up, doesn't it? And so the role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. The role of the Holy Spirit is to be a bit in the background. Because it's not about Him being glorified, but the Son being glorified. And so the fact we don't know as much about the Holy Spirit as the other two doesn't bother me as much as it used to. Because that is evidence of the role that the Holy Spirit plays. Now, should we know more? Yes. Do we need to know? Yes. Should we read Scripture and ask questions? Yes. But you see, you see that evidence of those roles, of how they happen? Now, take the Scripture. Look, look at it. Look at Christ, who is the one that what happens as you read this, and I say to look into the face of Christ, that's what the Gospels are about primarily. So what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit takes these words and He illuminates them. To, so that you can see Christ in there. So when you pray, pray, God, help me. How does God help you? The Holy Spirit takes the Word and begins to help you to see spiritually who Jesus is. That's the Trinitarian view. 
Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. It's important to keep all of that all of that in, in mind as we read now, as we look and go through the Gospels. The interesting thing about, um, about this whole idea of the Godhead and this ordering is that it's been that way not just in the Incarnation. In other words, it didn't just happen when Jesus came that they played different roles while Jesus was on earth, incarnate, those 30-some years that he spent here before he went back to the right hand of the Father. It, it, it is taught in Scripture from eternity past and all the way through eternity future. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All possess the attributes of the other, but play different roles from the very, I can't even say beginning, but eternity past to eternity future. That's the way it is. That's the way Scripture reads. That's the way we see it in Scripture. So, first of all, the Word became flesh now. God became flesh. Just chew on that as you read the Gospels. When you see Jesus, you see God. Not a third of God. You see God. What's the Father like? He's like the Son. The Word became flesh. Now, secondly... Not only did he become, not only was he God, but he became fully man. He fully entered in to humanity. He was fully God and fully man. And you can't fully reconcile that. But it's important to think hard about it. I mean, there are places where you come to and there's mystery and you can't go any farther. And we have to just say with Paul, who can know the mind of the Lord? Fully. We can't. But should we try to know what we can know and what has been revealed? Yes. And so, he's fully God, fully man. And, and the thing about that fully manhood, fully God thing, for all eternity future. Jesus doesn't just become incarnate. He doesn't just become fully man for 33 years. But he continues to be fully God and fully man for all eternity future. For all eternity. Now, the question is this. This is, this is where we launch into some new territory to someone. Why? Why? I mean, that's, I hope you ask, why? Why in the world, fully God, fully man? Why did the Word become flesh and dwell among us? Why? We touched on this last time, and that is because God can't die. And it took a man to die for us. I mean, that's a simple answer. It's a profound answer. Why did he become fully man? Because a man had to die if our sin was going to be cared for. Jesus died as a man. Not as God. God can't die. God dies, everything dies. God can't die. Man died. Look at, look at it with me. Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews quickly this morning. A couple of different places to remind you of this. And we're going to come back to these passages. 
Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Listen to what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, who? Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through, the, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did he have to become a man? Another part of the answer, to free us from lifelong slavery. To free us. He came to set us free. But the only way God could do that was to become man. And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It took a man to do that. It took a perfect man, but it took a man to die. So why did Jesus come as fully man? Because he had to die. It was prophesied. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Look at what it says. Way in the beginning. The very first chapter of the Bible. This is what it says. The Lord said to the serpent. This is the judgment to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You see, it's starting to tell us why Jesus had to become a man. Because there was going to be enmity between the offspring of the woman and Satan and his offspring. There was going to be a battle set up. And it goes on to say this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I don't know why I put it in that order. I think it's better to say this or more understandable for us to see and you shall bruise his heel. Satan bruised the heel of Christ, didn't he? Christ had incredible suffering as a man on the cross. Go back and watch the passion of Christ again if you haven't lately. He, you shall bruise his heel, but what? He shall bruise your head. You can lose your heel. You can have your heel crushed and live. But you can't have your head crushed and live. You see, the, the decisive battle gets set up. And what is that battle? Who's fighting that battle? The one who was fully God, but became fully man so that he could be the offspring of the woman. It was prophesied. It had to be that way. He had to be fully man in order to fulfill the prophecy that was there. So, it took a man to die, a perfect man. He had to die. That's the first answer to the why. The second answer is this. He came to die, but before he could die, he had to live for us. He had to live in a certain way. And the scripture says it had to be perfect. He had to live perfectly. Scripture says, maybe we decide to go die for someone. 
in the eternal sense, it won't do any good because we're not perfect. I can't die for your sin. You can't die for my sin. The only one who could die, the only man who could die was a perfect man. And the scripture says that's what Christ was. Look at, look at chapter 2 in verse 17. We've already read it, but it says in this passage that you are turned to, hopefully still, therefore he had to be like his brothers in every respect so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. He had to be like us in every sense except sin. You go over to chapter 4 and verse 15. And it says this, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The key phrase is there, He became like us in every way yet without sin. Because not only did He have to die for us, but He had to live for us. And He had to live for us perfectly without sin. He had to be fully man. That's a hard thing for us to get our head around. Totally. I want to read to you something that comes out of a book that that I came across a number of years ago that that really began to open up the Incarnation to me in ways that I had not seen it before. It really caused words like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'd read those words. I'd probably preached from those words. But they began to take on dimensions that were... Were, were magnified for me. I began to see more of the glory of Christ in it. I, I owe much of that to Bruce Ware in a book that he wrote on the Trinity. And that book's entitled Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relation, Roles, and Relevance. But it's a, it's a book that if you're looking for a book to read about the Trinity, it's, it's a little book. It's got fairly good-sized print in it, but it's profound. You should get that book. You should read that book. You should chew on that book. But listen to what he writes. This is what began to just just shine the glory of Christ to me more brightly about the Incarnation. It said this, and he's speaking of Christ now, because one of the problems I had, I think, though I may not have totally even verbalized at that point, is yeah, he was fully man, but he was also fully God. And so there was a sense in which it wasn't exactly like I face it. That somehow his divine nature aided him in his resistance of sin. Even so slightly, he had an advantage. That would be the way to say it. He, I think I had this idea Christ somehow had an advantage. And what happened when I read this is I realized, no, he didn't. He didn't. He was fully man. You can't say he's fully man if he's not. And you can't say he's tempted in every way without sin if he wasn't tempted in every way just like I am and just like you are. But listen to what Ware said. This is what just just burst in upon me as I read it. He's speaking of Christ. And he's talking about the fact that Jesus willingly accepted limitations 
in becoming fully man. He says this, In accepting these limitations, however, Jesus did not discard or give up any of his attributes of deity. To think so is to deny the full deity of Christ and to entertain a view judged by the church as heresy. There's a fine line here. And, and as you cross that line, it's heresy. It says, Rather, while Jesus was fully God and as such retained all the infinite and eternal attributes possessed by his divine nature, he never quit being God. He never laid down his Godhead in the sense that he surrendered it. He was always fully God but he was also fully man. This is what it says. Rather, while Jesus was fully God and as such retained all the infinite eternal attributes possessed by his divine nature, he accepted the limitation or restriction of use or expression or manifestation of certain of his divine attributes in order to live a life fully as a man. Is there mystery there? Yes. Is it true? I, I believe yes. After all, Jesus could not really have experienced life as we know it or live life as authentically human if, for example, he was omniscient in his own consciousness as a person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. While his divine nature continued to possess the attributes of omniscience, Jesus accepted the limitation of not having access to this infinite knowledge so that he could live as we live and grow in wisdom and understanding through the hard work of learning by the power of the Spirit. This explains then why Jesus says concerning the hour of the second coming, which no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Uh, that's, that's a hard text. That Jesus doesn't know the time when he will return. And yet he's God. How can God not know something? He was fully man, yet fully God. And somehow, some way, some dimension, there's mystery in it, accepted the limitation or restriction of use or expression or manifestation of certain divine attributes in order to live a life fully as a man. Can we fully explain it? No. Is that the revelation of Scripture? Yes. And you really won't trust this Jesus unless you're able to say, he was tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. If there's one, one place, one dimension where he could rely on something we don't have, it couldn't say that. And though we don't know how, that seems to be the revelation of Scripture. And it changed my paradigm. It changed the way I began to look at Christ and the Incarnation. It changed the way I felt as I read the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It literally means the Word tabernacled. God tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us. Fully dwelt with us. And uh, it helps me to understand passages like Matthew 26. Turn, turn there with me and we're going to wrap this up. Matthew chapter 26. Look at what it says in verse 39. This is Jesus in the garden as he's undergoing in intense pressure now. Intense, intense oppressions coming to Jesus in verse 39 of chapter 26. Or excuse me, yes, of chapter 26. And here's what it says. Jesus is speaking. He says, my, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
remain here and watch with me. He's pleading with his disciples to, to pray. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. You see the humanity of Christ in that passage? If you don't, if you think somehow he, he escaped that with his divine nature, you're missing the revelation of Scripture. He was fully man. What you read is what he felt and more. He was tempted in every way yet without sin. There's an interesting passage of Scripture, and I'm going to have to wrap this up here, and then we'll, we'll move on next week a little bit. But this is it. There's a passage of Scripture, Roman, or Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, that I want you to turn. If you can turn there quickly, if not, just listen to what it says. And we'll close with this this morning. This is, this is about Jesus. This is the writer of Hebrews talking about Jesus. He says, although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designed, designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What I want you to see here is, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How in the world did Jesus learn obedience? Does it mean he learned it out of disobedience? Does it mean he disobeyed so he learned to obey? That's how we do it, isn't it? We disobey, our parents correct us, we learn to obey. Now think about that a minute. If that happened, we just as well check out and go home and eat, drink, and be merry. If Jesus learned obedience from disobedience, forget it, we're done. There's no reason to meet on Sunday mornings. All you need to do is get all the gusto you can get in life because there's no hope. Because he had to be perfect. So, he was perfect, the scripture says. It says that he, he, he was a perfect sacrifice. I closed it. So what does it mean that he learned obedience? I think this is what it means. Each degree of suffering that Jesus endured, which is no different and felt no less than what we feel it as we go through life, and life hits us, and the brokenness comes in upon us. He didn't have anything to shield him from what he felt. He didn't use his divine nature to, to protect himself. He felt it. He felt the full brunt of it coming in upon him. And each time, he obeyed. With each suffering that came in his life, he obeyed. He had this suffering, he obeyed. So he learned then that he could trust God in the next time it came, that God would give him the grace to help him. And again and again and again. Now, what I, can't, what I can't unpack to you today and what I will next week is the way that he was strengthened is the same way that we're strengthened. In other words, the same way we're called to live out the Christian life is by the enablement of the third person of the, Holy, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to strengthen us with grace. You know, when Jesus went back, he said, I'll send another 
He'll send the third person of the Trinity. The Scripture says if we're believers, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And I believe that Jesus learned obedience by being empowered by the Holy Spirit, just like we're to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The difference is sometimes we fail. He never did. And as he continued to rely on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in his fully human existence here, that he didn't call on his divine nature to, to bail him out, but he called on what? He cried out to the third person, to the Father, to, to, to strengthen him by the Holy Spirit. You see that picture and that pattern? And so when it says he learned obedience from what he suffered, is he suffered He trusted the Holy Spirit to give him the grace he needed. And he was successful because of reliance upon the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit to bring grace. So the next time, when it got tougher, he did the same thing and he was successful. And the next time, and the next time, until he got to the garden, until he got to the the final test, the final act. And how did he... Do it perfectly? He did it by being strengthened by the Spirit, just like he'd done it all the other times. So he learned obedience from what he suffered. Not from failing, but from succeeding, by trusting. And when I started to see that a number of years ago, it, it, just, it just blew the doors open for me in how we're to live out the Christian life. We're to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're to do it the same way Jesus did it, and I'm out of time. I've got to stop. I can't, I can't show you the Scripture. You have to trust me. Next week, I'm going, to, I'm going to do that. Next week, I'm going to show you those passages. I didn't pull that out of thin air. And, and we're going to continue on. Let's stand together and pray. We're going to pray and then we're just going to sing this morning that song, the gospel song, that simple message of the gospel in song as Matthew leads us this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'll help us. I pray that you will help us just like you help the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us to see that. Help us to see the glory of that. That your Son was fully God, but He became fully man. So that not only could He die, but He could live as an example for us of how we're to live. He did it perfectly, Lord. So we don't have to go home. We can come back next Sunday with hope. And I pray, Father, as we see more and more, we'll... Have that hope rise in our soul. Strengthen our soul. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.
even Jesus, I think, knew in those days on this earth the truth of what Paul said when he said, from him and through him and to him are all things. He looked to the Father to strengthen him by the Holy Spirit. God bless you.